You know, you just, you just got to love Brother Tool. <laughs> you just got to love him. I love these old songs. They're not all old. Brother Tool might be old. No, he, Brother Tool's not old. But I just, I just love these old uh, Sunday school songs and vacation Bible school songs. And, and, uh, and uh, they just bring back a lot of really neat memories. And they're great songs. They're full of truth. They're full of God's love and truth about his word and everything he's done for us. In fact, to find your copy of God's holy word, if you brought it with you, and turn to the book of Luke chapter 2, the gospel of Luke chapter 2. That's where we're going to start. He said, uh, he said, you know, did you recognize that we sang the same songs last week? I'll, I'll tell you a little story. There was uh, one Saturday night, early Sunday morning, uh, I was dreaming a song, and this tune was going through my head. Da 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 And I wake up on Sunday morning with this tune in my head. That's a great tune. Wonder, wonder where that came from. And I, I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I could not remember where I had heard that tune. Da 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 and, da, da. and I started piecing the words together a little bit. And uh, I'm just having a great time Sunday morning. I come to church and I sit back there with Mrs. Reisinger and Mr. Mrs. Tool are doing their thing and all of a sudden, let the Lord have his way. And it's oh it's a Sunday school song. Yeah. It's great. So I love that song and uh I hope the songs stick in your head like that and that you're blessed by them because those are, those are wonderful. Those are wonderful. Luke chapter 2. We're going to use our Bibles a little bit this morning. And uh, uh, there's a reason that uh, Pastor Virgil and Pastor Stephen uh, don't let me teach in the morning service and uh, in the afternoon service. And that's because uh, I never have enough time. So they let me teach Bible hour because at 10.30 I'm done whether I like it or not, right? So I promise you that I'm not going to finish. There's your warning, okay? But at 10.30 I'm done. It doesn't matter where we're at, right? So if we end in a really weird spot, that's why, okay? Because I can't seem to put together my thoughts in, in that time frame the way I'm supposed to like the professional guys do, right? They can... Uh, they can work out all their notes and work out their timing. And they seem to just, they seem to be able to end, except for Pastor Stephen, you know, sometimes. So. But that's okay. That's okay. We're used to that here, and we like that. But in the Bible hour at 1030, I'm done, you know, whether I like it or not. Right, right? So um, I'm not going to finish. I'm not going to get finished. Uh, so I'm just, I'm going to take my time, and we're going to see what God has for us this morning from His Word. And, uh, and hopefully you'll be blessed by it. And it is my, uh, it is my prayer that uh, you will find something in this lesson this morning that will really bless your heart and help you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus, with the Lord. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. I thought about using this story, the picture book of the Bible, this story is an illustration to close with. 
but I think it's too important a story to close with, so I'm going to start with it to make sure we get it in, okay? Luke chapter 2, verse 39, look at it with me. And when they, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. Verse 40, and the child, Jesus, grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking, and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? How is it that ye sought me? Wist, don't you understand? Don't you see? Don't you know? Not that I must be about my father's business. Pray with me, will you? Thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the wonderful example that he is to us, being about the Father's business. Even when he was 12. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for the work that you had Jesus do. And I thank you for the work that you have for us to do. Thank you for the joy that is in your presence while doing your work. We love you. So very much for what you have done for us, what you are doing for us, and what you are about to do.
I pray that you would steal my emotions and steer my thoughts. And my heart's desire is that I would communicate to these, my brothers and sisters, what you have put on my heart in a clear, concise way so that we might understand your heart. In Jesus' great and mighty name, I pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. Ethan, can I have the next slide, please? There is a spiritual truth that I want you to walk away with this morning if you don't hear anything else I say. I would like for you to try to remember this. There is great joy in the presence of the Father while doing the Father's work. There is great joy in the presence of the Father while doing the Father's work. There is great joy in the presence of the Father while doing the Father's work. Will you say that with me, please? There is great joy in the presence of the Father while doing the Father's work. I wanted to start with this story of Jesus. It's often puzzled me that we, only seem, we seem to only have this one story of Jesus in his boyhood. We have the story of his birth, but then we have this one little story about when he was 12 years old, where even at the age of 12, he demonstrates that he is about his father's work. He's about his father's business. How many of you are 12? Can you raise your hand if you're 12? There's a 12-year-old. There's a 12-year-old. There's a 12-year-old. Okay. Several. This, this is the age that Jesus was when he was about the Father's work. And he's demonstrating for you and me that even at the age of 12, you can be about the Father's work. There is, a, there is great joy in the presence of the Father while doing the Father's work. So that you might experience this truth personally, there is a life skill that I want to challenge you with this morning, a life skill that I want you to practice. The life skill that I want you to practice. Ethan, can I have the next slide, please? It is the life skill of paristemi. The life skill of paristemi. Can you say that with me? Say paris te me. Paris te me. Paristemi. That is a transliteration of a Greek word, and I want you to hang on to that a little bit the life skill of paristemi. Jesus didn't show up at the temple in Jerusalem when he was age 12 and just decide to begin the Father's business. I think maybe there was some education, some pre-planning, some pre-thought 
okay? I think it was a life skill that Jesus was practicing long before he ever showed up in the temple at age 12. He began practicing this life skill. Now, what is a life skill? A life skill is something that we learn about, that we then practice, and we develop a skill for. It's a skill that we use our entire life long, right? This morning I got up and I put on my shirt. And I buttoned up my shirt, and I think I got it straight. Okay? I buttoned up my shirt. All right? That, was a, that is a life skill that I learned when I was a child. My mom or dad came along and they said, you put this shirt on and this is how you button it up. This is how you tuck it in. Okay? I've been putting my shirt on my entire life. And I think most of my life I've been buttoning it up straight. Right? Okay? So that's a life skill. You know what? I didn't think twice about how to put my shirt on this morning. I just did it. And then when I got old enough, my father came along and he said, this is how you tie a tie. And he demonstrated for me how to tie a tie. And I watched him. He demonstrated it. Then I tried it. He said, no, 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 not like that. And he fixed it for me. And I tried it again, and he demonstrated again, and I tried it again, and I practiced, and I practiced, and I practiced, and this morning I put my tie on. And I've been putting my tie on my entire life, and I didn't even think about how to put my tie on. Okay? That's a life skill. We learn to drive. That's one of our cultural life skills. We learn to tie our shoes. There are many, many, many life skills, right? Things we use our entire life long that we, not even, we don't even think about. Well, this is one of those life skills that I would like to challenge you with to practice. Now, it takes some education. We need to learn about this life skill and then practice it. And as we practice it, we will experience it. And as we experience it, it will become like second nature to us. We won't even think about it. Right? And I think that's what Jesus was demonstrating. Jesus at age 12, he said, don't you understand that I would be about my father's business? Why did he say that to them? Because from, from birth to age 12, what was he doing? He shows up on planet earth. From birth to age 12, what is Jesus doing? He's practicing, he's learning, he's practicing, he's doing the Father's work. So at age 12, he's in the temple doing the Father's work, and he says, what, what? Didn't you know that I would be about my Father's business? The life skill of paristemi. The life skill of paristemi. And we'll say some more about that. So we're going to leave this story, and we're going to go to Romans 12. In your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to ask you to go on a journey with me, just a short trip. It's kind of a spectacular trip to the Roman mountains, Ethan. I'm going to ask you to go on a journey with me to the Roman mountains. Now, it's my understanding that there are, there are like seven hills in Rome. I'm not referring to those mountains, 
okay? I'm referring to the mountains that I see in the letter to the Romans. I argue that this book, this book that, you, that is laying in your lap, this, your copy of God's holy word, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. From Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation chapter 22, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ, just a, as a way of illustration, Ethan, can I have the next slide, please? It's like a target. Okay? It's like a target. The fact that you are saved, if you have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are now saved, you claim to be a believer, a Christian, and the glorious blessed fact that the day you die or when Jesus comes back to get us in the rapture, you, you will not be going to hell, but you will be going to heaven. That does not constitute the spiritual content of your salvation. Most of us think that because I'm saved, I'm not going to hell, and I am going to heaven, that that is the gospel. That is gloriously true about the gospel. And the fact that you are not going to hell and you are going to heaven is a wonderful, glorious blessing. It's a wonderful, glorious fact. And I'm not diminishing that, trying to in any way, shape, or form. But it does not constitute the spiritual content, the stuff that your salvation is made of. Okay? Those are, that's a result of your salvation. The gospel is kind of like a target where you have the center, the bullseye, and then around the bullseye you have many, 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 many rings of spiritual blessing, forgiveness, victory over sin, intimacy with the Father, so on and so forth, right? The bullseye is the very center. We call it the bullseye, right? If you're a marksman, now think about this a second. If you're a marksman shooting at that target, either with a bow or a gun, okay, what are you aiming at? Quickly. The yellow dot, the center, okay? Now let me ask the question again. You see the center of that target. If you're a marksman, if you are a professional marksman, what are you aiming at? The black dot in the center that you can't see. Now on my target there is no center black dot, but that's center cut. The very center of that yellow dot is what you're aiming at. The very center, the very core of your salvation is Jesus himself. Okay? It is Jesus 
himself. He is center cut. He is the spot on the spot. He is the bullseye of the bullseye. He is the very spiritual content of your salvation. Jesus, listen to me now, Jesus did not come to earth, become a human being, live a perfect life, give his life on the cross, shed his blood, be put in a grave, rise again the third day, ascend to be at the right hand of the Father as our high priest to make intercession for you and I in order that you would not go to hell and go to heaven. You say, what? That's not why he did it. Jesus died on a cross so that you and I might become one with him. One with him. You say, where do you get that? That's John 17. What is John 17? John 17 is the Lord's high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, he prays in the hearing of the Apostle John, who wrote his eyewitness account. He heard Jesus pray to the Father, glorify me that I might glorify you, and that the disciples and those that believe on me after their word might become one with me and become one with you, and that we might be one. Jesus said in John 14, he said, in that day you will know, you will know something. In that day, I think that was the day that the Holy Spirit came and never left. In that day, you will know that I, Jesus, am in the Father, that you are in me, and that I, Jesus, am in you. And we are one. It is oneness with Jesus Christ. Oneness is the spiritual content of our salvation. That's why he saved you. He saved you to be intimately related to him. Yes, in heaven forever and ever and ever with no timeouts. The letter to the Romans, can we go back to the mountain? The letter to the Romans, if, if I were to put it like in a picture book, it reads to me like a great and mighty mountain range. You approach the mountain range from one end and there's this high and great mountain, and you reach the summit of that high and great mountain and it it gives way to another mountain and to another and to another and to another. Romans chapter 1, we have the mountain of the gospel of God. The gospel of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It's the gospel of God, and it stands as a century to this great and mighty mountain range. 
In Romans chapter 3, this mountain gives way to the next mountain, and the next mountain in the mountain range is the mountain of the righteousness of God that's been revealed. The righteousness of God that's been revealed without the law is Jesus Christ. It reveals this great mountain, the righteousness of God. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the next mountain, the mountain of justification. And this mountain seems to be part of a group of four, and it stands like a mighty crown in this mountain range of four peaks. Justification, identification, sanctification, and glorification. These four great mighty mountain peaks. And you reach the summit of that last peak of glorification and you look out and here's this wide and massive mountain that I call the mountain of Israel. That's Romans 9, 10, and 11. And how important that relationship is with Israel. We got Jesus through Israel and how we are related to Israel. Extremely important passage of scripture. But you reach the summit of Romans 11, and it gives way to this magnificent, incredible, the highest of all mountains in this mountain range. It is as wide as it is high. It's made of bedrock. This is Romans chapter 12. Verses 1, 2, and 3. And we're going to look at them here. If Jesus Christ and oneness with him is the spiritual content of our salvation, the letter to the Romans, Romans 1 through 11, moving into this mountain, Romans 12, 1 and 2. This, Romans 1 through 11, is how God makes it possible for us to be one with him. Romans 12, 1, 2, and 3 is how we take what is true about us and we move it into our experience. Romans 1 through 11, this is true about you. Romans 12, this is how you experience what is true about you. You follow me? Let's look at it together. Romans 12, 1 to 3. And I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to start in verse 3 and work backwards. Okay? Verse 3 says, read it with, or I'll read it for you. Follow along. For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm reading along in my Bible, and I'm listening to the Apostle Paul, and I'm actually listening to the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul, and I'm listening to the Holy Spirit, and, and we're chugging through the book of Romans here, and I get to this verse, and, and he says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, this is a pretty powerful statement. He says, for, because I say, 
through the grace given unto me. So he's invoking the very grace of God. I think the grace of God is everything God is. All of his attributes, everything he is, being poured out on us through Jesus Christ. His love, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his infinitude, his magnitude, everything he is, being poured out on us through Jesus Christ, the grace of God. He's invoking the grace of God to make this statement. He says, through the grace given unto me, to every one of you that has heard what I've just said, to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, or not to think more highly than he ought to think. Now, the Apostle Paul was an expert at religious pride, okay? Uh, just check out Philippians chapter 3. He was Captain Israel, okay? He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew the law. He went as far as to say, according to the law, I'm blameless. I call him Captain Israel. He was on top. Twice in the New Testament, he invokes his tribe. He says, I'm from Benjamin. Okay? And here he, he has spent 11 chapters laying out who we are in Jesus Christ, and he comes to this verse and he says, now be careful. Don't get proud. Don't get puffed up. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Why would he say that? In my mind, the Apostle Paul is teaching. And the scribe is sitting at a little table over here and he's, he's writing away. And he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And in my mind, I see this skinny little old scribe. He drops his quill, and he jumps up out of his chair, and he says, Paul, that's incredible. You've got to be kidding me. And he starts doing a jig, and he is happier than anyone you have ever seen. And Paul says, sit down and write. For I say unto you, to every, by the grace of God given unto me, to every man that is among you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Now hang on a minute, he says, just, just calm down. Yes, it is that spectacular. Yes, it is an experience that can be that full of joy and that full of wonder and that full of amazement that you would react that way, but, but don't get proud. So what in the world is he talking about? Right? Is that what you're thinking? I hope so. If you are, you're tracking with me, right? Yeah. Okay. So what is he saying? Let's go back to verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
When I was a young man, I didn't find anything joyful about these verses whatsoever. Now follow me. I was a reasonably intelligent young man. I don't think I was dumb. Maybe not the smartest tool in the shed. But I come along these, these verses and I see, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies. And I understood it this way. Now, this is what I learned. I don't know what I was taught. I don't know what I was taught. But this is what I learned. What I learned was that, you know, Bob, because God pitied you, because he felt so sorry for you, that he sent his son Jesus to go to the cross and die for you. you know, he, in his great pity, he pitied you so much, felt so sorry for you, that you in turn, therefore, should present your body out of an act of gratitude, out of an act of thankfulness, uh, out of an act of just worship, you should present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which after all is your reasonable service. And I took that to mean that I was to take my body, because God pitied me, and I'm now a Christian, that I was to take my body, and I was to come up with things that are good and acceptable to God, to make myself holy, present myself holy and acceptable to Him. So I need to find holy, acceptable things to do in order to present myself, my body to God, right? So I take my body, and I'm now going to go find holy and acceptable things to do. Okay? Now, if you are a performance-oriented person, you're going to like that theology. Because you're looking for a list. You're looking for stuff to do in order to present to the Lord, right? Good and holy and acceptable things I'm going, to, I'm going to find those things to make myself holy and make myself presentable. Well, I grew up a little bit. And after realizing that that in and of itself really didn't work, it worked some. I was not a performance-oriented person. I was more of a beat-on-me kind of person. And it didn't work out so well because the harder I tried, the worse it got. <laughs> right? So I grew up a little bit, and I kept reading. And I read, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Yeah, 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 I'm trying that. I'm, I'm doing my best here. And then he says, and, and, add to, and, and, oh, I missed something. Oh, yeah. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Oh, okay, I, I missed something here. Not only am I supposed to be doing holy things, I am to uh, be unconformed 
not conform myself to the world, not to fashion myself after the world, not to act like the world, not to look like the world. I'm to look different, and I'm to conform myself to this over here. Right? Be not conformed. Okay, so if I'm not going to be conformed to this, then I need to be conformed to this over here. So what was this over here? Well, that, that depended on who you listened to and who you talked to. Being conformed to what? Oh, well, the Bible. And this person would say, this is what the Bible says and this is what you're supposed to do. And I'd say, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. And I thought I was on a roll. I conformed less to this over here and I conformed more to this over here. And I tried my best and I tried all these different things only to crash and burn. And then I read some more. It says, oh, 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 okay. Be not conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All right, I got it. I got it now. Now I got it. I am to renew my mind. The renewing of your mind. So, hey, let's get that book out. I got the book out. Let's start memorizing those verses. Let's read that Bible every day. Let's pray. Let's, let's control my thoughts. Let's, let's think about all the right things. Right? I'm going to renew my mind, and I'm going to conform while I'm renewing my mind, and then I'll be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That couldn't be any farther from the truth than you could get. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good an acceptable and perfect will of God. The key to bringing what God says is true about him and about me into my moment-by-moment -moment experience is found in these two verses. And that's why the scribe got so happy. And I'm going to try to do this very quickly because I only have eight minutes. So how do I present? How do I present my body? There's only one way to do it, and that's by believing the impossible. I wish I had time for this illustration, and if Pastor Stephen brings me back, we'll back up and we'll do this. You didn't get saved without believing the impossible. A good, one good biblical definition of biblical faith is that faith is being fully persuaded that God is able to perform that which he has promised. Are you fully persuaded that God is able to perform that which he has promised? 
That's Romans 4, gang. You know what happens in Romans 4? The Apostle Paul is talking about Abraham. Abraham believed God for what? He believed God for a baby. A baby that would bless every nation in the world. A baby that would bring salvation. A baby that would be Messiah. Abraham believed God, and what does the Scripture say? God counted it to him for righteousness. Turn to Romans 4 quickly. Romans 4, the last couple of verses. I want you to see it. I'm going to start reading in verse 17. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. That's the impossible. Only God makes the impossible possible. I wish we could hang out there, but we don't have time. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Does that sound familiar? And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Watch this. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. You, when you got saved, you believed God for the impossible. He, through Jesus, made the impossible possible. What is that? For you to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not to make you righteous, but to give you the righteousness of Jesus. It's His righteousness. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. It's Jesus. Okay? You got saved. You said yes. You said, yes, God himself poured out his grace by grace through faith through Jesus to you and imputed his righteousness to you. You might think I'm nuts, but I'm standing here today in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Why? Because I am fully persuaded that God is able to perform that which he promised. And the Bible says that it was written for me so that when I believe in Jesus, he pours it out through him to me. Would you just do me a favor real quick? Just pause for a second. And if you're a believer, would you say, in Jesus Christ, I am righteous? Would you do that? I'm, I'm, I'm hearing a hundred yeah buts. I get it. I, I'm not telling you that I'm a perfect person. I am not. I am not. I was born in Adam, a sinner. But in Jesus Christ, I am a redeemed sinner. 
because his righteousness, God, through Jesus, has imputed to me. I beseech you. I plead with you. I beg you. Would you please, brethren, by the mercies, not the pity. I, there, there is biblical pity. I understand that. It wasn't that God felt sorry for me. His infinite mercy, boundaryless, unchangeable mercy, poured himself out through Jesus to me. By that mercy, would you please just present your body? A living sacrifice? This is where the scribe lost it. What does a Jewish man know about sacrifices? Sacrifices have to be holy. They have to be without spot. They have to be without blemish. They have to be completely ceremonially clean. No ifs, ands, or buts. And he would take that prize sacrifice, that's what a sacrifice is, his prize's possession, and he would give it to the priest to do whatever the priest had to do to it. Holy, acceptable unto God. Because Jesus was my substitute, my sacrifice, he says, now you present yourself a living sacrifice. A sacrifice can only be spotless. It can only be without blemish. It has to be perfect. And the only way for you to be perfect, it's impossible for you to be perfect. The only way for you to be perfect is if the righteousness of God has been imputed unto you. Because his righteousness is perfect. He makes you perfect. He does. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable unto God. It is holy. There isn't anything you can do to make it holy and acceptable. It is because of Jesus, and that's all. It's that simple. It is. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. If you have been made righteous through the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, and you are righteous, it is okay for you to present yourself to God, holy and acceptable. It's just your reasonable service of worship. That's the natural, well, the scribe is saying, well, of course. Of course. The word paristemi is the word to present. It means to, it's used primarily in three different ways in the, in the scripture. It's used for the word to stand by. Stand by. Jed, stand up here real quick. I'm going to present myself to Jed. Jed, here I am. I am now in his presence. Right? I'm standing by him in his presence. Okay? It means to present, 
to stand by, and it's also used, it's also translated the word yield, to yield in Romans chapter 6. So I'm yielding myself to an idea, to a creed, to a statement of faith, to a denomination? Am I yielding myself to the Baptist church? No. In this case, I'm yielding myself to Jed. Okay, you can have a seat. When you yield your body to the Father, what part of me am I not yielding? What part of me am I not presenting? Which part? Am I just yielding my body? What about my spirit and my soul? No, when, when you yield your body, he gets it all. He gets my spirit, he gets my soul, however you want to define those things. He gets all of me. A living sacrifice. What does the high priest do with sacrifices? Anything he wants to. And what the scribe got was that there is great joy in the presence of the Father while doing the Father's work. Father, I'm out of time. And it's kind of a, an interesting place to stop. But we'll trust you. I pray that you would quicken every heart, every mind. Quicken us and make us alive in you. In Jesus' great and mighty name. Bless us now, we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for being patient with me.